I invite you to take a seat and we'll get started. We're going to start out this morning with a little exercise. It's a fill in the blank. There's no right or wrong answer. Lots of answers that are totally applicable. But the phrase is, life is. Life is. Fill in the blank. I'm thinking life is payback right now, right Miko? What is life is? What are some more? What, what comes to mind when you see this? Life is good. Spoken by grandma as she's sitting next to her grandsons. Life is good. Other ideas, thoughts? Life is crazy. Crazy. Yes, it is. A lot of times, huh? Any other words? Life is challenging. Yep. Life is a gift. Definitely is that. What is that, Marshall? Life is unpredictable. Absolutely. You can't predict everything that happens, can you? Any other things that come to mind? Life is a struggle, oftentimes. Yeah. Life is short. Yes. Life is going too fast. The older you get, the more you're like, man, where did all the time go? I agree. Yeah. Life is. Life is all of these things. Unpredictable, challenging, a struggle, short, good, hard, and everything in between. And so I'd kind of sum it up as just life is kind of messy, right? Do you agree life is kind of messy? And a lot of times, like, we can go through things and, like, Life gets messy, things happen, things, things seem to be going just well, and all of a sudden things we have no control of just, bam, smack us right in the face, right? Or sometimes life gets messy and things start spiraling out of control because we make some dumb decisions. Anybody like me make some dumb decisions, right? And then it's like one after another after another and it spirals out of control and before you know it, you're in this place where you never thought that you would be. And it's like, how did I get here? Life is messy, and it kind of stinks when it's in those kinds of places. And I've discovered recently, in the midst of some cruddy kind of situations, that I have this tendency to assume things. I assume the worst about people, about situations, about circumstances— and God, I think, is trying to, like, show me this because it just seems to come again and again lately, where I just assume things, and he wants to smack me over the head a little bit. But as I'm discovering this tendency, I'm realizing, like, I really don't like that about myself. And it keeps coming up. And so I realize as I'm preaching today, like, I'm not just preaching to you, I'm, I'm preaching to myself, and I long for the day where one of these days I'll be able to sit up on, you know, like my soapbox and I can preach down to people instead of preaching to myself. But I don't think that's ever going to happen. So this is where we are. But I want to start with a simple analogy that I think seems pretty relatable. You're driving down the road and somebody cuts in front of you, right? That seems like be a topic like every service, it's the ones that everybody can relate to. But you're driving down the road. Somebody cuts in front of you, and you assume the worst. Automatically, like, everything just goes nuts, and it's all about that guy that just cut in front of you. What an idiot! What a moron! We can judge his whole life in his circumstances based on that two-second window that we just saw, right? And it's like, 
Come on. And we think, man, he should not be driving. He shouldn't have his license. He's going to cause an accident. He's going to kill somebody. Enough is enough. Like that guy should not be driving. And the funny thing is how many of you have been in that same situation where you were the guy? Okay, a couple of you, like a lot of you guys need to talk to Jesus because you're not really honest. A few honest people here. But I think we've all been there. But when, see, when I do it, it's, it's different. Because I just, oh, I just had a momentary lapse in judgment. I misread his speed or whatever. And so it's totally understandable when I do it. When the other guy does it, nah. And so we assume the worst about this other person. And assumptions like this begin early. Uh, when, when the boys were little, the, uh, I'm, I'm not going to use names. But when our boys were little, they, uh, there would be, like Justin and I, aren't they cute? Justin and I would be talking, we'd be having a conversation, and one of them might be kind of near us, kind of standing, propped up against the wall, or maybe sitting down, whatever, just minding his own business. And one of his brothers would come, just kind of not paying attention, and he'd trip over a little part of his shoe or foot or something, and just, bam, face plant right on the floor. Just smacks his face right on there. And he would be completely enraged. As he jumps onto his feet, his face is all red. His nostrils are, are flared. Um, his, his hair is like literally standing straight on end. His fists are clenched and his body is trembling because he's just so mad. And adrenaline is flowing through his body. And he bellows out this unbelievable cry of intense child rage. You tripped me on purpose! Yeah! And then go nuts. Like there is some great weeping and gnashing of teeth in our house. But no matter how much you tried to explain to him that it was an accident, that this wasn't intentional, like he just would not accept that. He assumed the worst. So this happens like at a very young age. And so these are kind of funny illustrations that we can laugh at and hopefully have some fun with. But this is going to take us to our verse today. As we continue our trek into the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, we're in verse 7. And it reads, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And some of you might be thinking, okay, Pastor Michael, how does this relate to the stories that you just said? I don't get it. And I'm just going to ask you to hold on a little bit. We shall get there. But let's unpackage this idea of merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The merciful in this verse is derived from a Greek word that means beneficial or charitable. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Uh, the term is commonly used to translate the Hebrew word hesed, which is one of the most commonly used words to describe God's character. It's usually translated as mercy, love, loving kindness, or steadfast love. And the basic meaning of merciful is to give help to the afflicted, to rescue the helpless. And it's not just feeling compassion, it's compassion in action. Giving food to the hungry, comfort for those who mourn, love to the rejected, companionship to the lonely, and forgiveness to the offender. It's meeting people right where they are in their desperate need. And mercy, you see, is a big deal to God. And as I just mentioned, it's one of the common ways that we describe God. Deuteronomy 4 says, The Lord your God is a merciful God. And people, humanity made in the image of God, were intended to represent God's character as we steward his creation. We're to demonstrate this idea of mercy. 
And yet it's one of the things that we seem to habitually get wrong time and time again. And by we, I'm mainly talking about us as the church. We get this wrong. And I don't expect people outside the church to know what God's character is like. I don't expect them to emulate that. But there's a different standard for us, right? And far too often, what they see out there and the way that they describe the church are words like judgmental, hypocritical, uh, self-righteous, unloving, mean-spirited, merciful. is nowhere in there. And it's not without cause. And I think if we're all to be honest, like, I've seen people get hurt by the church where they eat people up, right? And they've caused great pain and hurt and sometimes devastation in their week. The church often eats their own. And that really bothers me because I don't see Jesus ever doing what a lot of his people do and they claim to do in his name. Like I don't see that in his character at all. And so sometimes we seem to forget that we are sinners that are justified and redeemed only because of what Jesus has done for us, not because of anything that we've done ourselves. And so mercy is a big deal. It's a big deal to God. Listen to these words of Jesus in the book of Matthew. He said, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Or another translation will say, I'm after mercy, not religion. For I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And you see, the Jewish people got it wrong again and again because they thought their sacrifices and they thought their offerings made them okay with God. They thought it made them okay with God, but God was and is always much more interested in what's going on on the inside. He's interested in our hearts and how we display love, how we display mercy. And we can get caught up in all the rules, the thou shalt and the thou shalt not, and completely miss the very heart of why they're there in the first place. Paul says in Galatians 5.14 that for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And so mercy is the result of this thing called love. And out of love flows compassion. And compassion is then demonstrated through mercy. So mercy is compassion in action. Mercy comes from compassion, which comes from love. And mercy is what the Good Samaritan demonstrated to his neighbor. How many of you know that story, the Good Samaritan? Some of you, some of you not, maybe, and that's okay. But the story reads in Luke chapter 10, an expert in religious law asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as he commonly does, he doesn't just answer the question. He asks his own question. And he says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replied, you have answered correctly. Ding, 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 ding. Do this and you will live. But then the expert wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him a story. Again, he didn't just answer the question. He tells a story. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. 
He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. And then Jesus asked the man a question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the man replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. And see, here's the thing, and I know I've said this before, but Jews hated Samaritans. They hated Samaritans. They thought they were godless heathen dogs. And they made all kinds of assumptions about them. And the ones in the story that we might have expected to demonstrate mercy would have been the priest and the Levite because these were men of God, right? And yet essentially, like, they were following the letter of the law because touching this man beaten and lying on the road, possibly dead, could have defiled them. They would have been unclean. And according to the law, it would have defiled them. So technically, they may have been in the right as they pass this person on the other side because they will not do things that could make them unclean. And yet Jesus shows us a completely different paradigm of what it means to follow him. And this story is a powerful demonstration of God's mercy, and it characterizes the heart of God. It characterizes the heart of God. And if we want to be better image bearers of God, we always want to look to Jesus as our example. Right? He's the supreme example. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And so some of us might have an issue with this because we see God as this wrathful, vengeful, angry kind of God who is waiting to judge humanity with fire and brimstone. And then we see Jesus on the other side who is love and offers himself as a sacrifice for us. And he's taking on God's wrath of us and kind of shielding us from the blows of this angry God. And those two pictures don't seem to mash and But scripture says Jesus is the exact, the very character of God. And those are some things that we might have to wrestle with because we understand who God is and what he is like through this person of Jesus. And we want to emulate Jesus. That's how we we become climbing companions of Jesus as we seek to become like him and do what he does. And listen to how Jesus related to us. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. He said it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. And see, Jesus put himself in our place. He took on flesh. He took on our skin. As Ed Dobson said, he got in our skin. He got in our skin. He thought like us. He saw like us. And he felt like us. And because Jesus got in our skin, he empathizes and sympathizes and extends mercy to us. And similarly, in the story To Kill a Mockingbird, you may have read that story. Atticus Fitch, one of the main characters, gives this timeless piece of advice to his daughter when he tells her, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. But you see, it's a lot easier for us to sit 
in our homes, in our little bubbles, with our limited experiences, and think we know everything that's going on in somebody else's life. We know everything that's going on in somebody else's circumstances, even those that we know closely and those that we don't really know at all, and situations on the other side of the world. We have this assumption that we know exactly what's going on, that we have the right answer to fix this problem. And I found that my assumptions of people, of situations, and all these things get in the way of me being able to have compassion for them and being able to demonstrate mercy because I assume something that oftentimes is completely not true. Even with my wife, a lot of our arguments and things, like until I can get into her skin and hear her heart and what, how she sees things, I've got a completely different idea and I'll find out I'm completely wrong. And I've been humbled time and time and time again. And so I would submit this idea to you that too often what gets in the way of us showing mercy is our assumptions. Our assumptions. What assumptions do we make about people or situations? And we could go in so many different areas with this. I'm just going to look at a couple. What assumptions do we make about foreigners or immigrants? Illegal immigrants. Oh my gosh. They're trying to steal our jobs. They're trying to bring in drugs into the country. They're trying to bring America down. Right? Or if only they would do it legally, then it wouldn't be an issue. If they would just do it legally, but why do they have to kind of go around? Like, to be honest, like most of these guys don't have an option to do things legally. And I know there are a remnant of these that get up in here, but like life is not black and white. We can't stereotype everything. And I've found that there is so much gray in the world, and faith is often lived in the gray. It's in those gray areas where you can't just stereotype in and think that everything is the way that you see it. Because in this mess are families, moms and dads who want to give their kids a chance. They want to give them hope for a better life and they have nothing. They have no resources. They have no hope. And they're in this crummy situation. And for those of us who have been born in the United States and have privilege and, and, and access to things, like it's really different for us being able to say this and come from this kind of judgmental view on these other people who are like, we have no idea what it's like to be in their shoes. And the jobs that they take that are well below minimum wage, like they do that because there's nothing for them downstairs, like down in the other part of the world. And if we were just to let ourselves get in their shoes, maybe our perspectives might change a little bit. What assumptions do we make about people on the opposite side of the political spectrum? Oh, good gracious! Because we take this little piece of what we see of their belief and we judge them godless, God-haters, evil, stupid, uneducated morons. And yet there, so much of them is not so different from us same desires, but what experiences have they gone through to shape them in their understanding of the world? What has their life been like? And if rather than judging them from a distance, what if we listen to their stories that shape their lives? What if we sought to understand? We might just learn something because life is not simple. What assumptions do we have about the homeless? 
They're alcoholics. They're drug addicts. They're scam artists with their stupid signs trying to take advantage of me and my family and my hard-earned money. How dare them? Right? Or they probably deserve to be where they are because of their bad decisions. They deserve to be right in that place. That's God's judgment on them. What about addicts? What assumptions do we have about addicts? This is an area I'm able to learn more now. But we might think that they're selfish, they're lazy, they're thieves. They don't care about anyone else but themselves. They're a waste of skin. Of course, we're not going to say that out loud most of the time. But what do we know about their stories? What do we know about their stories? There's a young man that I know, and I, I love this guy to death. But he grew up without a father. He never knew his father. His mom abandoned him when he was a child so she could run off with some guy in some other state halfway across the country. He had no stability growing up. He was moved around from family to family. Not a lot of support. Not a lot of things going on that were really in his favor at all. He was in school. He got in the football. Excellent football player. And boom, life happened. He had an injury that almost took his life. It was that severe. Went to the doctor, got pain meds. That's the end of the story. He's living a life of addiction ever since. And see, addicts, like this is a disease that like they are not who they are when they're in the middle of this. And that we can make a lot of assumptions about people in this place. What assumptions do we have about prisoners? They're godless, evil, murderers. And yes, some of them are, but if we get to know them, like we'll find they're not so different either. They have the same hopes and dreams, desires. Again, they didn't have a lot of the opportunities that we might have had. They might have been in bad situations, made a bad decision, hanging around the wrong kind of people, and that's why they're there today. But we're a lot alike. And here Jesus said, Matthew 25, he said, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And he tells us to demonstrate mercy, right? And notice that Jesus didn't qualify anything about how we're supposed to do this. He didn't qualify their character or circumstances of any of these people. Didn't do it. Not if they're deserving. Not if they do all the right stuff. It's a very different picture from my attitude that is common. I'm finding again and again I get into trouble and I am not able to show compassion and mercy because I assume things that a lot of times aren't true. What assumptions do we have about those who have fallen into sin? By those who have fallen into sin, like especially in the church. Oh my goodness. Hypocrites, backslidden, they've turned their back on God, and they were probably never even Christians in the first place. They are a wolf in sheep's clothing, and I knew it all along. They need to be out of here. They're unworthy of fellowship, my respect, or my attention. 
How many of us have ever been hurt by those in the church who ruled us out, condemned us for one reason or another? See, the thing is, when we hold on to our assumptions about others, when we hold on to our assumptions, we, in effect, are giving ourselves permission to withhold mercy from them because we've already made a decision in our minds that they are unworthy of it. We've already made the decision that they're unworthy of it. Now, there's this idea from a well-known theologian who honestly, like, I, I kind of struggle with a little bit because he just seems arrogant and condescending and he has this attitude and just like I see little grace and mercy and it just, it rubs me the wrong way. But he says this, and not that you can't learn from guys like this, right? And that's kind of the struggle that I have too because I can learn, but sometimes things just rub me. But he said, mercy that ignores sin is false mercy. Mercy that ignores sin is false mercy. It is thought to be unloving and unkind to hold people responsible for their sins, but that is cheap grace and that is not just and is not merciful. And see, I think we need to be really careful with this whole idea because this idea can affect our ability to show mercy in a very bad way. In a very bad way. So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, like, you don't judge those on the outside, but we are to judge those inside the church. But understand that was for a very precise set of conditions and attitudes that were prevalent. So yes, but... Our judgment is always meant to be restorative in nature, with love being our motivation. Love has got to be our motivation. It's not our job to hold people responsible for their sins. That's not our job. That is God's alone. And again, as climate companions of Jesus, we want to model his posture because there will always be consequences for sin. There will always be consequences for sin. Sometimes it smacks you and it grabs you right away and it devastates right away. Other times it will sit with us and it will slowly bleed out, but it will always have consequences. But we don't condemn people. We don't punish people or shame them or anything like that. We're not on sin patrol. We're not on sin patrol. And I don't see that idea anywhere in the life of Jesus. I don't see that in his life. Because the fact is I have sinned again and again. I continue to sin every day. A lot of times I'm even completely unaware of my sin. But when I do, God doesn't beat me up for it. He doesn't beat me up for it. He is a loving father who seeks me out. He meets me where I am. He helps me recognize my sin. And he still invites me into relationship. Offers this chance of repentance. And he challenges me to live differently. And he does that with each one of us. And that's a posture that we need to have for one another. But some of us will remain in bondage because we have chosen to continue to embrace our shackles of shame and condemnation. Or we insist on throwing those shackles on somebody else, those shackles of shame and condemnation when Jesus has already set us free. And that should not be so. Here's a picture of what mercy looks like in Jesus. In John chapter 8, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman caught in the very act of adultery. Not just suspicion, she was caught in the very act. And don't ask 
about the man that wasn't brought, because that's a whole different sermon. But they bring her to Jesus, and they said, the law says to stone her. What do you say? And Jesus makes a simple statement. He says, let him who has not sinned cast the first stone. Right? See, a lot of you nodding. We know that story well. Let him who has not sinned cast the first stone. And slowly, one by one, defeated, they dropped their stone and they walked away. And so Jesus is basically left alone with this woman. And he basically says to her, like, woman, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. See, God's desire has always been to save, to redeem, and restore. Always. And in his mercy, he continually meets us where we are. He invites us into relationship with him. He offers us an alternative and a better way to live. And he meets me in some of my awful assumptions about people. And if I were to be totally honest, I have had some assumptions about some of you. And God's working. And some of you, maybe a lot of you, have had some assumptions about me. (laughs) Oh boy. But those very things, those assumptions I have, again, are the things that get in the way of me meeting people where they are and demonstrating compassion and mercy for them. And God's working in me. I know he'll continue. But he wants to lovingly expose this stuff to bring it to our attention and just say, hey, there's a better way. There's a better way. Yeah? And so if you have sermon notes, there's some things in the bottom. Um, I'd encourage you to reflect this week because you can hear a message on Sunday and go home and forget all about it. In five minutes, you're not going to remember a thing that I say. But transformation is those moments where we spend some time with Jesus and we allow him to expose things in us, to speak into us, and offer his compassion and mercy and grace, right? So here are just some questions like, what assumptions do we make when we look at people in their situations? What assumptions do we have that are hindering us from being able to show compassion? from demonstrating mercy? Are we willing to allow ourselves the ability to put ourselves in their place? To think about what life is like from their perspective and so by doing that, allow God to see what life is like in their shoes. As Dobson said, are we willing to think like them? To see like them and feel like them? Are we willing to get into their skin and empathize, sympathize, and extend mercy? the same way that Jesus has done for us. And some of us here may need an extension of mercy and to know what that feels like because maybe we feel like we've been beaten up, judged unfairly. And maybe God wants you to know how much he loves you and how much mercy he has for you. What does mercy look like as a church body? How can we show mercy to those on the outside of these walls and to those within it? How can we better represent the character of Jesus? Because that's what we all want, isn't it? Let's pray.
Father, God, we thank you for your great compassion and mercy that extends to us, even when we are often undeserving. And Father, I pray that you would open up our minds, that you would open up our hearts, that you would expose those things in us that keep us from displaying your character to those all around us. Lord, help us to get into the skin of other people, to see things from a new perspective so that as we connect with them, as we pray for them, as we look at life, Lord, that we would do it from a much different perspective than our limited perceptions. But allow us to see things through your eyes, through their eyes, so that we can meet them where they are and love them and in everything point them to Jesus. God, we thank you that you are for us, you're not against us, uh, that you are continuing to do the work that you began in us a long time ago, and you're faithful to complete it until you return. So God, have your way in us, your church, and we will always praise you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.